our verses as much as possible. We want the Word of God to set the agenda. We believe that the Bible is, in fact, the Word of God. We know that there are plenty of opinions out there. In fact, if you don't believe me, just hop on social media for about 10 seconds. You realize that everybody has an opinion. But what we don't need is more opinions. What we need is to hear from God's Word. And so that's why we do what we do here. That's why we take books of the Bible and preach them verse by verse. And this morning, that means we're in Acts 9, 32 to 43. Let me pray, and then we'll get to it. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to open your word. We do believe it is your word. And in a world that is indeed swimming with opinions, we pray that this morning we would hear your voice. We don't need more opinions. We don't need more people telling us what they think we should do. We need your voice. And so we pray that you would speak loudly and clearly this morning through your word, that as we open your word today to Acts chapter 9, verses 32 to 43, you would speak, and we would hear, and your spirit would work in such a way that we would be convicted and challenged and encouraged, and ultimately that we would leave here worshiping. So Lord, please help us now speak through your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, going into the 1980 Winter Olympics, the men's ice hockey team from the Soviet Union was thought to be one of the greatest hockey teams ever assembled. Prior to the 1980 Olympics, the Soviet Union had won gold medals in each of the four previous Olympics and world championships in 12 of the past 16 competitions. The 1980 team was particularly salty. In the year leading up to the Olympics, the Soviet Union squared off in a three-game series against a team of all-stars from the National Hockey League. That particular NHL All-Star team was comprised of 20 future Hall of Famers, and yet the Soviets beat them two games to one, including one victory by a 6-0 to count. In every sense of the word, that hockey team was dominant, especially in comparison to a team like the United States. In between the 1960 and 1980 Olympics, the Soviet Union and the United States squared off 12 times in ice hockey. The Soviets won every game. They outscored the Americans by a total of 117-26. to On average, then, the Soviets won by a score of 9.75 to 2.1. That is a beatdown. So going into the 1980 Olympics, the idea that the United States could possibly beat the Soviet Union in hockey would have been a laughable notion. Although the U.S. team was young and talented, the general consensus was they were still light years behind the Soviets. And that consensus was seemingly confirmed just one week prior to the Olympics. The Soviet Union and the United States squared off in an exhibition game, and the Soviets won 10-3. Simply put, then, no one thought the United States could beat the Soviet Union prior to the 1980 Olympics. But then they played the game. After sailing through group play, the United States squared off against the Soviet Union in the semifinals of the Olympics, and then against all odds, they kept the game close. And because the game was close, the Soviets began to panic. They inexplicably pulled their legendary goaltender after the first period when the score was tied. And in the third and final period, the United States scored two goals to come from behind and win 4-3. to three. It was one of the most stunning upsets in sports history, and it was a moment that was forever etched into sports legend when announcer Al Michaels famously quipped in the last seconds of the game, do you believe in miracles? From that point forward, the game became known as the miracle on ice. In the many years since, many have revisited the game and returned to that theme of a miracle, including Disney in the 2004 hit movie, Miracle. But listen, while I certainly appreciate a good underdog story, and even enjoyed that particular movie. The question I would ask this morning is simply this. Was it really a miracle that the United States beat the Soviet Union? Miracle is one of those words that we like to throw around quite a bit. We say things like, it's a miracle that team won the game. 
Or it's a miracle that I cooked dinner and it tasted okay. Or it's a miracle that our kids didn't argue this weekend. Or it's a miracle that I played basketball and did not pull a hamstring. And on and on it goes. But when we use the word miracle like that to describe almost everything, I think it's possible we might have lost sight of the meaning of the word. Or to use the words of Inigo Montoya and the Princess Bride, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. There is such a thing as a miracle. But a hockey team winning a game is probably not one of them. At least if you're thinking about miracle in the traditional sense of the word. I think that traditional sense of the word is captured well by author John Collins when he defines miracle in this way. And I quote here, A miracle in the fullest sense is an event of God's providence in which the outcome goes beyond what the natural properties of the created things involved could have produced. I think that last part is important. The outcome goes beyond what the natural properties of the created things involved could have produced. Or as theologian Wayne Grudem puts it more simply, a miracle is a less common kind of God's activity in which he arouses people's awe and wonder and bears witness to himself. Needless to say, by those definitions, much of what we would describe as miraculous is not actually miraculous. But by any definition, I think we could all agree that the events that we read about today in Acts 9, 32-43 are indeed a miracle. It's my hope that in studying this passage And these two miracle accounts, not only would we grow in our appreciation for a God who can do the miraculous, but more importantly, I pray that we would grow in our general understanding of who he is and that we would then live in light of who he is. So that said, let's go and read here. If you're physically able, I'm going to ask you to stand out of reverence for the reading of God's word. Acts 9, 32 to 43. Two miracle accounts. The words will be on the screen here. You can listen as I read or you can look along in your own Bibles. But as we read, let me remind you, this is the word of God. Verse 32 says this, Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they'd washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon a tanner. It's the word of God, you may be seated. So in Acts 9.32, which is where we're picking up the book of Acts this morning, the tension shifts away from Saul and back to Peter. You may remember from the last two weeks that Saul's conversion and then his subsequent interaction with the church in Jerusalem began to take center stage in chapter 9. But now Luke, who's the author of Acts, directs our attention back to Peter. He's likely doing so because I think he's setting the stage for what will happen in chapter 10. Chapter 10 is a huge turning point in the book of Acts and a huge turning point in the history of the church. Because in chapter chapter 10, Peter is going to be given a vision in which he's to take the gospel to the Gentiles. 
And I think the function of these two brief stories here at the end of chapter 9, these two miracle accounts, is to one, help us understand how did Peter end up in Gentile territory, but more importantly, I think the function of these accounts is to help us see that God was at work in Peter. As Peter is going to become the instrument to cross the Gentile barrier, God is working in him. And make no mistake, these two stories are highlighting the work of God in Peter's life because both of these stories are indeed miraculous. And I don't mean miraculous in the sense that your team won the game. I mean miraculous in the truest sense of the word. In these two stories, God operates outside of his normal means to accomplish something that's astonishing and breathtaking and draws attention to his greatness. The first miraculous event is found in verses 32 to 35. Again, we read in those verses, Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now, in using the language he does there in verses 32 to 35, Luke clearly wants us to understand that what happens to the paralytic man Aeneas is not normal. Luke tells us that he was paralyzed and bedridden for eight years. In other words, he wasn't just kind of injured, and then over time his body healed. No, he was truly paralyzed, and nothing, and I mean nothing, was going to heal him. Now, to be sure, there are times where God intervenes through normal medical means. He uses doctors and nurses and physical therapists to bring about healing. When that happens, it's a great blessing. But I don't think that type of intervention by God would fall into the category of the miraculous. That's God working through the normal created order to accomplish his purposes and his plans. But what happens here with Aeneas is God working outside of his normal means to accomplish something miraculous. Aeneas was paralyzed and bedridden for eight years. There was nothing the doctors could do. There was no medical intervention that was going to rescue him. But through Peter, God intervenes and acts outside of his normal created order to bring about healing for Aeneas. And that's what makes this event miraculous. God goes beyond the natural properties of a created order in order to produce an outcome that draws attention to his greatness and power. And we see the same thing in the second account. Look again at verses 35 to 43. Or excuse me, 36 to 43. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they'd washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed, and turning the body, said, Tabitha, rise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling all the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all the Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon the Tanner. Again, goes, Luke goes to great lengths in this second account here to help us understand that God is doing something completely out of the ordinary. It's not that Dorcas is almost dead, or sort of dead. She is dead, dead. They've washed her body. They've taken her to an upper room. She is truly and completely gone. And yet God uses Peter to miraculously raise her from the dead. Now again, there are normal means that God might use within his created order to sometimes bring back someone from the dead. For example, example, someone performing CPR or a doctor using the paddles. Those are normal means God might use to bring someone back from what we would describe as dead. But for someone to be dead for days 
and then to raise simply because someone says to them, arise, which is what happens here with Dorcas. That is not a normal operation within the created order. That is God operating outside of normal means to draw attention to his greatness and his power. It is a miraculous work. And without question, both the healing of Aeneas and the resuscitation of Dorcas fall into the category of miracle. What God does in these two stories is not ordinary. He is operating outside of his normal means. But here are the questions I want us to consider this morning. What exactly are we supposed to learn from these accounts? And how should we live in light of what we read here? These are not normal things, and most of us will not encounter these types of situations. And so what are we supposed to learn? And what are we supposed to do with this? I mean, it's cool what Peter does here. I think we could all agree, this is awesome. But what do we learn from these stories? And how should we live in light of them? I think it's important for us to be able to answer those questions. And to get to the second question, how should we live? I think we have to answer the first question first. So the first question is simply this. What lessons can we learn from these two accounts? Now, I'm sure there are lots of lessons we could learn, but there are two primary lessons I want to draw our attention to this morning. The first lesson is simply this. God can do the impossible. God can do the impossible. Now, I've been to a lot of hospitals in recent years, in particular a lot of children's hospitals, and I've seen a lot of sick kids, and it's heartbreaking. And I wish that I could walk by a kid who's in a wheelchair and just tell them, rise get up, get going. But I can't because I don't have that power. By the same token, I've been to lots of funerals over the years, and funerals too are heartbreaking primarily because those who are left behind are in a state of grief and sadness. And primarily for the sake of those grieving, I wish I could just walk by the casket and tell the dead person, get up, get going. But I can't do that either because I don't have that power. It's impossible for me to tell a paralyzed kid, get up, walk, it's impossible for me, on my own power, to tell a dead person, raised from the dead. But as this passage makes clear, those things are not impossible for God. He can heal the lame. He can raise the dead. And in Acts 9, he does both of those things. Now, to be sure, God uses Peter to accomplish those tasks. But without question, it is God doing the miraculous. And in using the language he does, Luke wants us to see that. He wants us to understand that, yes, Peter is doing something here, but ultimately it is God, not Peter, who's bringing about this healing and bringing about the resuscitation of Dorcas. In fact, look at the language of verses 34 and 40 again. Verse 34, and Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed, and immediately he rose. Verse 40, but Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning his body, he said, Tabitha, rise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Now, the interesting thing about both of these accounts is both the healing of Aeneas and the resuscitation of Dorcas have very, very close parallels in the ministry of Jesus. In Mark 2, Jesus heals a paralytic man and tells him, rise, pick up your bed. Now here in Acts 9, Peter heals a paralytic man and tells him, rise, make your bed. Very similar. Mark 5, Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. In doing so, he asks everyone to leave the room, and then he says to the little girl in Aramaic, Talitha, kumai, which means, little girl, arise. Here in Acts 9, Peter clears out the room. He tells everyone to leave, just like Jesus did, and then he says to her, Tabitha, arise. Now, what's particularly interesting about that phrasing is that if Peter addressed her in Aramaic, which seems likely, given that he used her Aramaic name Tabitha rather than her Greek name Dorcas, then the difference from what Peter says here in Acts 9 as compared to what Jesus said in Mark 5 would have only been one letter. 
Not one word, one letter. Jesus, Talitha Kumai, Peter would have said Tabitha Kumai. Now the reason why I think that Luke goes to these lengths to show these parallels, and ultimately it's the Holy Spirit doing that, is because the Holy Spirit and Luke want us to understand Peter is not the one performing these miracles. Rather, Jesus is still at work through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is still doing the miraculous work, and Luke wants us to see that through these parallels. He also wants us to see it through the language that he uses. In verse 34, again, he says, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. Verse 40, Luke informs us that Peter prays and then tells Tabitha to rise. In both instances, Luke wants to make it crystal clear to us, God is doing this miraculous work. And in that, we are reminded God can do the impossible. What we cannot do, he can, because nothing is too hard for him. Now, to be sure, that doesn't mean that he always will do the miraculous. Sometimes he brings miraculous healing to the nieces of the world. Sometimes he raises the Dorcases of the world from the dead. But most of the time, he doesn't. And that raises a very difficult question, doesn't it? If God can do the impossible, why doesn't he do it more often? If God can heal the sick and the lame, why doesn't he? Or to make it more personal, if God can do the impossible, why doesn't he heal my son? Or why doesn't he heal your loved one? Or why doesn't he prevent your loved one from dying prematurely? Those are hard questions, aren't they? And there's no easy answer. I think we have to be honest in saying that sometimes we just don't know why God does what he does. His purposes are mysterious. But I think what we can say in light of this passage is, in light of this passage and in light of these two accounts, is that God has purposes that go beyond physical healing. And those greater purposes, I think, help us to understand why sometimes he heals and sometimes he doesn't. And that brings us to the second lesson of this passage, that the purpose of God's miraculous work is to draw attention to the truthfulness of the gospel message. Now, I want you to notice the end result of both of these accounts. Look again at verses 34 and 35. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. Now here's the result, verse 35. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Look again at verses 41 and 42. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. Now here's the result, verse 42. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. So why does God choose to miraculously heal Aeneas? Why does God choose to miraculously raise Dorcas from the dead? I think the answer is that he's authenticating the ministry of Peter, and ultimately he's drawing attention to the truthfulness of the gospel message. And the reason why I think we see such a great concentration of these types of things in the book of Acts is because the gospel message is just spreading for the first time. And as the gospel message spreads, God is helping the message to be authenticated. He's helping the people to see this message is true, and the messenger that I've sent is sent by me. Another reason is the reason why God does what he does here in Acts 9 is not because his end goal was to heal Aeneas or to raise Dorcas from the dead. He does what he does to ultimately draw attention to the gospel message so that those in Joppa and Lydda would have ears to hear what Peter is saying about Jesus, about Jesus being raised from the dead, dying on the cross for our sins. The purpose here is not just the healing or the resuscitation. The purpose is the spreading of the gospel. I mean, think about it this way. If the purpose of the miracles was to spare Aeneas suffering or to keep Dorcas alive, then the miracles ultimately failed, didn't they? Because eventually Aeneas died too, and so did Dorcas. 
They may have been miraculously healed in the case of Aeneas and in the case of Dorcas, raised from the dead temporarily. But at some point, Aeneas got sick or injured again and died. And poor old Dorcas had to die twice. So there must be some greater purpose in these healings and this resuscitation rather than just physical healing. And I think there is. And the greater purpose here is that God is drawing attention to the truthfulness of the gospel message through these healings, which is entirely consistent with what we read elsewhere in the New Testament. In Acts 14.3, we're told that Paul and Barnabas spoke boldly for the Lord, and they, quote, bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So the signs and wonders, Acts 14 would say, were bearing witness to the truthfulness of the word of grace. Hebrews 2, verses 3 and 4, talks about the salvation that's available to us in Jesus Christ. And it talks about how this salvation was declared by the Lord and that God bore witness to the salvation by signs and wonders and various miracles. John 20, verses 30 and 31. John talks about the many signs and wonders that Jesus did and how these signs were written down so that we might believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. Even the Mark 2 passage, which parallels Aeneas' healing, in which Jesus healed a paralytic man, Jesus says in that passage, the reason why he's telling him to get up and take up his mat and go is so that the crowd would know he has authority to forgive sins. In other words, God's primary concern in all of those accounts is not that people find physical healing. Now to be sure, hear me, he has compassion on hurting people. And he does want to help those who are suffering. But his ultimate concern in doing the miraculous is that he's drawing attention to the truthfulness of the gospel message and to the greatness of his own power. So I think the reason why God sometimes miraculously intervenes and other times he does not is because he has a greater goal than just our physical healing. He wants us to see the glory of the gospel message. He wants us to understand that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that he rose from the dead, and that if we turn to him in saving faith, we can be spiritually healed, which is far more significant than any physical healing. We've said this time and time again with our own son. It's far better to have a son who's spiritually healthy and physically sick, which I think would describe our son, than to have a son who's physically healthy but spiritually sick. God can do the impossible, and sometimes he does, but the reason why he does the impossible is to draw attention to the greater truth, which is the spiritual healing that we can have in Jesus Christ. And so presumably, sometimes the reason why he doesn't do the impossible is because he has that greater goal. The greatest goal is not our physical healing, but rather is to see the truthfulness of the message of Jesus Christ. He's far more concerned with our spiritual health than he is with our physical healing. He's far more concerned about his eternal plan of glory than he is our temporary worldly pleasure. And so sometimes he doesn't miraculously intervene because his plan is far greater than just physical healing and our worldly health and prosperity. He's working for our eternal spiritual good. So I think those are the two lessons we learn from these miracles, that God can do the impossible, and the purpose of God's miraculous work is to draw attention to the truthfulness of the gospel message. But that brings us now to our second question. Well, how should we live in light of those lessons? What should we do with this? How should we respond to Acts 9? Again, I think there are a lot of things we could say, but let me just point out a few. First, I think we respond to this passage by entrusting ourselves to a God who can do the impossible. Entrusting ourselves to a God who can do the impossible. Over the last couple of weeks, and really over the last couple of years, Tony and I have spent a ton of time on the phone 
and Tanya more than me, but a ton of time on the phone with insurance companies and doctor's offices. And here's one of the things that we've learned in that process. If you want something to happen, you've got to find the right person. You have to find the person who has the power and ability to do something. As much as you might appreciate someone who has a sympathetic ear and is willing to listen, at the end of the day, if they don't have the power to make a decision, it doesn't really help. Both Tanya and I have talked to a ton of really nice insurance people and really pleasant medical staff members who weren't able to help us at all because they just didn't have any power. To get something done, you have to find the person who has the ability to get something done. To that end, I would just ask you this question. As you navigate the troubles and difficulties of this world, where else are you going to go? Who else are you going to entrust yourself to other than the one who can do the impossible? Listen, I'll be the first to admit, I don't always understand why God does what he does. And if I'm honest, I don't always like his plan, or I don't always see the wisdom in what he's trying to accomplish. But again, I would just ask the question, where else am I going to go to find trouble in time of need? Who else am I going to entrust myself to? I mean, I guess I could put my trust in my own resources and intellect, but the truth is I have some pretty serious limitations. As I've shared before, I regularly get injured in my sleep now that I'm in my 40s. I have zero idea how to fix almost anything. On multiple occasions, in fact, it happened this week, I've spent an inordinate amount of time looking for an object only to realize that it was in my pocket the whole time. And I can't tell you how many times I put on deodorant and 15 seconds later forgot, did I put on deodorant? And so I have to do a quick check. I have to smell, I have to feel. That may be weird, that may be gross even. I'm just telling you, that's how limited I am. I can't remember. Trust me when I say this too, when I call the insurance companies or the doctor's offices, they don't stop everything to accommodate me. They don't say, oh, it's Ryan Miller. Let's put everything down. Let's help this guy. No, that does not happen. I have some serious limitations. So putting trust in myself seems pretty foolish. But if I'm honest, so does putting trust in others. I don't know any person outside of Jesus who's risen from the dead or created the universe or knows every star by name. There's only one who's done all those things. So putting my trust in others seems pretty short-sighted too. And I certainly don't have an expectation that putting my trust in money or stuff or things will give me the results I'm looking for either. When you have a sick loved one or marriage that's crumbling or health that's deteriorating or stress that is overwhelming you, it doesn't matter how much money is in your bank account or what car you have in the garage. Those things are of no help when it comes to dealing with the actual problems of life. So again, I'll just ask you the question, who else or where else are you going to run or entrust yourself to other than a God who can do the impossible? Listen, it's true. God may not always do things the way that you would like, but who else has the power to actually help us in our troubles? Where else are we going to run? To echo the words of Peter, when Jesus says to the disciples, you guys want to go to? Peter says, where else are we going to go to find life? Now, to be sure, sometimes God's providence is a bitter pill to swallow. And many of you in this room can attest to that. But listen, if Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and if Jesus rose from the dead, and if all of the power is at his fingertips, and if he has the ability to do the impossible, where else are you going to run? I've never raised anyone from the dead. I've never healed a paralyzed man. I've never created the universe. I've never sustained the universe by a word from my mouth. And neither of you 
but he has. He has. Now, I understand if you're frustrated that God is not working things the way that you would like. And sometimes it is confusing. Why doesn't God do the miraculous work that he could? Sometimes it's troubling that we ask him again and again, take away this thorn. He doesn't. But even still, let me encourage you, entrust yourself to him anyway. Because if he died on the cross for your sins, you know he cares. If he rose from the dead, you know he's capable. If he's infinitely wise, you know he has a plan. And if he can do the impossible, you know his power is not limited. So acknowledge your own limitations. I can't fix my problems. Lament that things are broken. I think that's perfectly legitimate as Christians. Let's lament that the world is broken. And then let's relinquish our troubles. Let's let go of our troubles to a God who can do the impossible. Think of your troubles as a physical thing and let them go. Trust them to God. I think that's the first response from Acts 9. Entrust yourself to a God who can do the impossible. Secondly, I think we should prioritize our spiritual growth in Christ over everything else. In light of what we read here in Acts 9, we should prioritize our spiritual growth in Christ over everything else. If the purpose of miracles is to draw attention to the work of God and the truthfulness of the gospel message, and if that purpose supersedes the importance of our physical well-being, then it makes sense that if that's the way God has ordered the world, then that's the way we would operate too. After all, if God is the creator of the universe, he knows how the world best works. And so if he prioritizes our spiritual health and our spiritual well-being over our physical health and our physical well-being, then it seems to me that we should follow suit. But the problem is we often don't. We should prioritize our spiritual growth, but we don't. Instead, we prioritize our physical health or our worldly success or the accumulation of money or the pursuit of pleasure or the approval of people, or popularity in school, or academic achievements, or attaining power and influence. But in doing those things, we're missing out on God's priority. We're missing out on the purpose for which we were created, which is to know Him more. And when we start to abandon our purpose, that's a serious issue. Think about it this way. If you were trying to learn how to play the piano, and your piano teacher was only concerned with your posture and what you wore to the exclusion of actually teaching you to play the piano, at some point you would think, this is kind of weird, right? Granted, posture probably matters when you're playing the piano, and what you wear can make a difference too, having the right shoes, sleeves that aren't getting in the way. But if every piano lesson your teacher just talked about sitting more upright and wearing the right clothes, and they never actually taught you to, you know, play the piano, at some point you say, okay, we're missing something. The purpose of learning how to play the piano is, in the end, not just learning what to wear, how to sit. It's learning how to actually play the piano. In the same way, I would say this. While there's something to be said for posture and wearing the right clothes, there might be something to be said for achievements or popularity. But if at the end of the day you are made to know God and to grow in Christ, if you are failing to prioritize that, you're missing the point. To do anything else is the equivalent of never playing the piano when the goal is playing the piano. You were made to know him. You were made to bring glory to his name. And so if we're prioritizing other things, there's something messed up. You're missing out on the joy that could be yours. And so if that's you, and listen, it's one thing to say Christ is my priority. It's another to live like he actually is. You can trace your priorities by your time by the way you spend your money, and by the things you talk about. If Christ is not your actual priority, then let me encourage you this morning, it's not too late. Repent. 
Turn from the direction you're going and reprioritize Christ. Make him the greatest passion and your greatest goal in life. I think Acts 9 would remind us the greatest goal is not physical well-being or earthly success. The greatest goal is that we would know Jesus. So prioritize your spiritual growth. That's the second lesson. Here's the third. As we live in a broken world in which the miraculous seldom happens, we should seek to live faithful, ordinary lives for the glory of God. Or maybe just to put it more simply in terms of response, we should seek to live faithful, ordinary lives for the glory of God. Now here's the thing about a passage like this one. We can read about God's extraordinary work, and we can be disappointed that we've never experienced something like this. But there's a reason why miracles are miracles. It's because they are outside of the norm of how God usually works. Most of the time, miracles don't happen. So the question I would ask is this. How do we live in light of the fact that we live in a broken world in which miracles are scarce? Now, ironically, I think the answer to that question is found in this passage, which is about miracles. And the answer is found in the person of Dorcas. Now, I recognize Dorcas is not the coolest name. I've never met a Dorcas in my life. But the Dorcas of Acts 9 is a very underrated Bible character. She's actually a woman of great and faithful character, which is something that Luke kind of subtly goes out of his way to show us in this passage. First, look at the way she's described in verse 36. Now, there's in Joppa, a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. Now, those good works and acts of charity become, are coming to sharper focus in verse 39. Look again at the seniors. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. Now in the first century, widows were some of the most forgotten members of society. They were often poor and destitute and pushed to the side. And that what, that's what makes the scene in verse 39 so powerful. A bunch of widows are weeping at the death of Dorcas and they're holding up tunics and garments of clothes that Dorcas had made for them. Society may have forgotten about these widows, but Dorcas did not. She loved them, she cared for them, she provided for their physical needs. And in that, I think we have an amazing picture here of what everyday, ordinary Christianity is supposed to look like. In this passage, Dorcas herself does nothing miraculous. God raises her from the dead at the hands of Peter, but Dorcas didn't have anything to do with that. Dorcas herself simply did ordinary stuff. She loved forgotten people. She tangibly cared for them by making them clothing. And by including those details in this story, which could easily be overlooked, I think Luke is helping us to see this is what it looks like to live an ordinary life for the glory of God. The most inspiring thing about Dorcas' life, I'm convinced, is not that she was raised from the dead. It's how she lived before she died. Now listen, I suspect that in all of us, there's a desire to participate in something great, to experience the miraculous. But let me encourage you to not overlook the wonderfully ordinary example of Dorcas. Luke didn't have to include these details about her life, but he did. And I think he did so that he could help us understand this is what Christianity looks like in action. The truth is, most of us will probably never experience a truly miraculous event like the ones described here in Acts 9. Now we might... And I think it's okay to pray that those types of things would happen, provided that our goal is not just to experience the wonder itself, but rather to see the greatness of God's power. But it's unlikely that any of us will ever experience these types of situations. Because again, by definition, miracles are infrequent and rare. 
Even if you were to put all the miracles together in the Bible, you realize given the amount of time that's covered, these miracles don't happen often. But what all of us can do is this. In a broken world in which miracles are scarce, we can strive to live ordinary lives for the glory of God. Just like Dorcas. And I hope that we will. Because at the end of the day, a simple life that's lived in obedience to Christ accomplishes the same thing that a miraculous work of healing does. It brings glory to God and it highlights the truthfulness of the gospel message. So church, by all means, let us delight in a God who can do the miraculous. But let us also strive to live faithful lives of ordinary obedience for the glory of our great God. Because whether by the miraculous or by the ordinary, the important thing is that we point others to Jesus and help them to see the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. So let's live for him and let's make him known. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for this passage, the reminder that you can do the impossible. And we pray that we would entrust ourselves to you, knowing you can do the impossible. But as we entrust ourselves to you, we pray that we would live faithful, ordinary lives for your glory. That we would prioritize our spiritual growth, knowing that we will find joy when we are resting in you. So help us, Lord, today to be faithful, ordinary Christians. And help us to do it for your glory and for our good. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.